0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hello oh, and welcome to the Wintering Sessions with me Catherine May. Each week I talk to a writer about the wintering periods in their own life where they felt isolated, rejected, forced into the role of outsider or like they've fallen through the cracks. Today I'm delighted to speak to Catherine Cho, literary agent and author of the memoir Inferno, a vivid and absolutely extraordinary account of her postpartum psychosis after the birth of her son Cato. Welcome
1: Catherine. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Oh, thank you so
0: much for for being here. I just, I love the way that lockdown is letting us connect up online rather than having to organise really difficult meetings and things like that. It just makes this whole thing possible somehow. I know. So I read your amazing book, um, well, last year, and I was just immediately struck by how extraordinary it was. I felt like it took me to a place that I didn't understand at all and didn't really even know existed, I suppose, if I'm completely honest. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the the time that Inferno covers?
1: Yeah, so um, Inferno takes place during um, the two weeks that I was um, sectioned in a psychiatric unit in the US, Mm -hmm. um, which happened uh, a few months after the birth of my son. Um, And yeah, it, 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 it's about the... I had postpartum psychosis, I guess that's important to say. So um, I experienced a complete sort of break from reality. Mm. And in that, um, I I start in the ward and it kind of flashes back to uh, events in earlier in my life and then also mm. to um, the things that led up to psychosis. And I, it's more of an examination of why... Um, the psychosis might have happened yeah yeah
0: and it it does it, it it almost feels like we land with you in the ward like you've come to there from nowhere because you had quite a blank didn't you when you
1: first kind of came back into your own mind yes it's it's amazing in a way in that you I I woke up with that sensation of really not knowing who I was or and everything it it was such a strange kind of, as you say, blankness and mm. everything kind of came back in stages and it, it was really disorienting and a bit hard to to kind of come to terms with. Yeah.
0: It must've been completely terrifying. And I, reading it, I felt terrified on your behalf. I, I couldn't imagine what it must be like to, to really lose that sense of identity, I suppose. I, and, and to, i don't know to be in such an alien environment you were a visiting family in america and traveling weren't you yes
1: yeah, so um which i guess in retrospect was a very sort of naive decision but i wanted to use our shared parental leave to do a cross-country tour of the us right. so we went to five different cities um and we started when my son was two months old uh, we went from california to virginia finally to new Jersey. And, you know, I guess that sort of sleeplessness and mm. a lot of the sort of cultural pressures that I was facing. So my family and my in-laws are both Korean. Um, and in Korean culture, you really don't travel with a newborn baby. Um, actually, you're meant to stay home <laughs> and yeah. stay put for kind of in days. confinement for 21 days. Oh, 20 and then, days. but 100 days of, yes, being very careful. Right. Um, and they thought that we were being incredibly reckless. And I think that sort of combination of factors um, and being away from home kind of was a perfect storm
0: for that situation. Yeah. I, it really made me think about those early days of having a baby when you're not really sure what your restrictions and allowances are yet. You haven't really yeah. got the hang of how your life has changed. And I, I think it's really easy at that point to push yourself too far without knowing it's too far just stuff that would have been great in your previous life is suddenly really difficult and fraught and and full of tension I think
1: yeah I think so I think especially nowadays there's this expectation that you know you don't want to admit that life has really changed Mm. but actually it's you know a very vulnerable time and I remember you know giving birth and um, I was in the hospital for about a week in recovery, but afterwards I was like, you know, I'm going to do this and do that. And I remember, you know, we, I, I remember going to my office to like introduce the baby to friends and to my colleagues. And mm. thinking about it now, it's just like, I could have just, I didn't have anything to prove, but I suppose, I guess I wanted to show that I still could do all the things I wanted to do yeah. when actually maybe I couldn't.
0: You know. I, I remember taking my son out to a local cafe and the cafe owner, coming and kind of cooing about him and sort of, oh, he's gorgeous. But why are you outside? You know? yeah. <laughs> and I kind of thought, well, because I just want to be a person again. I don't know. It's just such a such yeah. a bizarre yeah. unsettling time. And I, I really related to um, your description of your family kind of and your husband's family almost compulsively telling you about stuff that could go wrong with babies. I'm, I remember my mother doing the same thing. <laughs> And it it really gets inside your head, doesn't it? This, this kind of new no. fear that you didn't even know you ought to have before.
1: It's funny because I think it's a compulsion that people. I mean, I, I you know it's it's a compulsion that people have that you know they want to kind of warn you, and as they warn you, they they want to emphasize the warning with a story, mm. <laughs> which isn't necessary. You know, something to kind of illustrate their point. And um, I guess as a mother, I mean, even from when you're pregnant, you feel this new sense of anxiety and uncertainty and just hearing stories about all the things that can go wrong I think you
0: know isn't isn't really the most helpful thing. No I I really when I read it I it just brought to mind um, me standing in the kitchen holding my son and my mum kind of blurting this story she'd heard about somebody who threw a baby out of a window and I remember just staring at her and clinging (laughs) on to him like and saying why are you telling me this right now and I don't think she really knew either I think it just brought it into her mind and people tell you all sorts of terrible things and it it's a yeah it's a really tricky time to to navigate and you're managing other people's feelings as well as your own and it's it's really difficult yeah so wow um yeah it's no surprise that more of us don't don't suffer um I
1: mean that was kind of my conclusion from yeah from the experience I was you like, did the oh, really you logical know, thing is,
0: yeah go crazy. But, so I mean you know you you laugh as say go crazy but I think um, what what came first for you was a kind of sense of paranoia. Is is that right? A, a sense of being observed. Yes, there was and... a
1: a building sense of paranoia, which I think was exacerbated um, by being in in the U.S. for whatever reason. My in-laws always had nest cams in the house and right. on, so I I felt like I was being surveilled, and actually, you know, I, I was in many ways, and that just I reached this new level of just just an awareness that I was being watched. And Mm -hmm. I thought that what people were saying weren't necessarily what they meant or that they were trying to communicate in a secret way. Um, But I suppose the trigger for me um, was actually my father-in-law telling me a story, kind of a similar story of what your mother told you, which was he told me about um, someone he knew who had shaken her baby, Mm -hmm. um, and then the baby went blind. And he was telling me this as a warning because he felt that, I was, you know, um, depressed maybe or just not, not taking care of myself. Right. And in that moment, I just remember all these this new sense of fear and kind of uncertainty. And when I went to go pick up my son, um, his face had changed. Mm. And that was when kind of everything very quickly sort of fell apart.
0: Yeah. And so this this, from the outside, extraordinary process began to happen whereby... Reality changed around you. In, in, I mean, to me as a reader who you know hasn't experienced what you've been through, felt psychedelic. I mean, such a complete other reality began to unfold for you.
1: It was a whole other kind of dimension. I mean, I suppose you know, when I think about it now, I do think it must be like being on psychedelics, in that Mm. your subconscious. Is processing things the same time as you're processing you know life in real time so you automatically lose any sense of time as time is passing and your brain just it's it, it just anything triggers a memory it triggers a moment it triggers something in your imagination so you can no longer be sure what is actually real and what is not real
0: yeah and so that that really began to kick off for you when you looked at your son and saw him with with demon eyes as you described them kind of red yes. eyes yeah and so what what unfolded after that can you describe it if you don't mind i
1: you know no yes of course um yeah so i his eyes looked like devil's eyes to me and in that moment i knew something was really wrong but i, I didn't know what was wrong and mm. it quickly devolved into um, well, I, I asked my husband to take me out of my in-law's house and into a hotel, which he did, uh, which I'm very grateful for. He didn't ask any questions. He just took us. Yeah. And in the hotel, I I thought that we were in a simulation, that we were stuck in this hotel room that we couldn't leave. Um, and so I started experiencing time kind of in a, a multiplied way. Um, and I thought that my son had died. And, you know, I at one point I thought I was, Hearing the voice of God telling me that, you know, that I was in hell and that I was Beatrice um, and that my husband was Dante and that we were destined um, to walk the circles of hell, I suppose. And yeah, it it just really escalated from there um, in that ultimately when my husband realized that I I really wasn't well, Mm. um, he took me to the emergency room. And and then from there, it it just becomes a complete psychotic break yeah um, where i'm not tied to a reality at all
0: and you you described all these kind of uh jungle animals kind of prowling the er this kind of sense yes. that that i mean it you know it, it's it's otherworldly isn't it and i i mean i'm i'm kind of blown away by what our minds can do under intense pressure which is what was happening to you you were under unbearable pressure
1: yes it is it is frightening how the mind you realise kind of how, in a way, it can be a prison in yeah. that you're just so at the mercy of what your mind is experiencing or thinking that it's experiencing. Mm. And it,
0: it, I suppose it, I, what it says to me is that our sense of reality is so subjective and... Yes, definitely. <laughs> ...it's really not stable in in the way that we think it is because that, that can all unfold for us. How how do you feel looking back on it now? I mean, it's amazing to talk to you because you, you report it in, you know, in almost a sort of detached, calm, rational way. Oh, thanks. And I, I think that's, I'm so impressed by that. I you, you seem to have this perspective on it that is
1: really um, clear-eyed. Thank you. Um, well, I guess um, I had a lot of time to process it. Um, so the psychosis... The, psycho- the psychotic episode itself lasted, I think, around five days, from right. what I understand. And then after that, I, I was in a psychiatric unit um, where I was kind of trying to piece everything together. Um, and then I had, when I came back to London, um, I fell into a, a very deep depression, which mm-hmm. is typical um, for people who have experienced psychosis. Um, and I think it was during that time that I really thought about it and considered it and I you know I didn't want to feel afraid of the experience Mm. which is why I think I thought about it so much I I wanted to understand and kind of trace the reasons for why it happened kind of what it meant maybe and you know remember as much of it as I could just because it was terrifying because I I genuinely believed that I was in a computer simulation and that my entire life to that point was you know had been just a simulation or an experience of hell which which is which is terrifying but i think in trying to understand it um that in a way gives you a bit of control over the narrative Mm. um and a bit of understanding um about it as well
0: and presumably writing about it helps quite a lot too i guess
1: yes definitely um so i kept a journal throughout the experience um even during psychosis actually which it's unreadable because it it doesn't make any sense but during the depression I I kept a journal um, Mm -hmm. and I I think writing about it really helped me remember it and then process it and then by the time I decided you know actually I I want to write a book about it I felt that I'd processed it enough to have a certain distance from the experience.
0: Well I'm really glad you did write a book about it because I was completely enchanted by it. Okay. I would really love to talk about your time in the uh, in the mental health unit in the in the or well, secure unit, as you you say, in the um, American hospital, um, yes. because that sounded like quite a tricky social environment to navigate. that be fair to say. Yes,
1: it was. So, um, I guess one complication of the experience, um, which any time I mention it to to someone who's not American, they immediately understand, is I didn't have health insurance. Right. Um, I had travelers insurance, which is a you know completely different thing. And mm. for my husband, a lot of the experience was actually trying to navigate um, the insurance. Yeah. Um, so because of that, I was put into. Well, they also they don't have mother baby units in the U.S., which they have here in the U.K. Mm. Um, so I was put in a general facility, and the facility I was put in was primarily for people who um, are on Medicaid, Medicare. Um, So there were quite a few veterans, there were people who were homeless, um, people who, you know, I, to be frank, I I was extremely privileged compared to the majority of the people um, in the ward, and the majority of the people um, are returners, so they, they're constantly in the ward, then they're released, and then they come back again, so it's, it's very much a revolving door, so it's a very strange environment to be in because there are set rules that are unspoken. And um, obviously everybody's kind of going to their own thing and going through their own experience. Um, and it feels very much, you know, I guess categorized by race as right. well, which right. I think is, you know, a very uniquely kind of American experience, but yes, it was, you know, I think when you don't really know for sure who you are, the easiest way to, identify someone else or yourself is just by what they look like, by yeah. what you see. So I, for example, for me, I had a lot of trouble seeing faces, but I could see the color of their skin. And I, I'm sure it was the same for them. So mm. everybody kind of self-segregated by race. And, you know, there was very much kind of a, a hierarchy of who kind of knew what was going on and the, you know, the people who didn't know. And right. everybody was just desperate to leave. And I think because there aren't the resources there. Um, nobody, <laughs> professional, whether it's a doctor or any of the workers, would really communicate with the patients. Um, so you really felt like you were just kind of existing in this very strange place and mm. not really knowing what's going to happen or what, you know, when you will leave. Uh, it, so it sounds that, uh, a lot
0: like a prison environment. I mean, just in terms of the fact that you're quite dehumanized your own clothes are taken away from you your freedom isn't really your own because you're sectioned um and there's that sense of the the kind of long-termers or the the people who 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 kind of understand the system um
1: yes i mean that's how at least (laughs) my only point of reference was i think i mentioned in the book was you know the show orange is the new black (laughs) which is you know embarrassing and just shows how you know little i know about things but yeah it it is true it it does feel like that and everything kind of there's a very strict schedule. Um, there were incidents of violence, so mm. the police would be called and come and take people away. And yeah, it was it was just a very a very strange environment. It doesn't sound therapeutic. No, I I, I think you know. <laughs> I mean, <it's, laughs> that's an understatement. I think maybe. It's, yeah, it's the opposite. I mean, I remember one thing that really shocked me was they had a television on, kind of all it was on all the time and. The shows they would watch were like really violent police right. you know, shows and I just remember sitting there like watching some version of Law and Order or Criminal Intent and just hearing like guns go off and everybody just kind of is like jolted from the, the seat. Yeah. and I just feel like, you know, that's not really the right the right thing to be playing on a television no. around people who are, you know, experiencing mental yeah. illness. And <laughs> you and um, quite heavy use
0: of medication as well I I think too which must make yes. it quite hard to kind of reorient yourself in in reality if that's not a weird way of saying it. yeah
1: no definitely I mean we at least I know for me my treatment was just medication and I was given the, one of the strongest antipsychotics um, a first generation drug to kind of stop what was going on and mm. yeah it, it's just um being on that level of medication is a very a very um, disorienting experience as well.
0: I should think so. I mean, I I remember being put on very um, strong old old school kind of antidepressants when I was a teenager, and just the feet, I can I, I'll never forget the feeling of the weight of them in my system. Mm-hmm. They felt like lead in my veins, and I I've never I've always refused antidepressants since, which is probably not always wise, but. I hear people talk about you know having a really great experience with antidepressants now and I I just think wow my my first experience was so heavy and dreadful that I can't imagine ever going back to them and I I should imagine that your regime was was even more extensive um and yeah it's it's quite I found it quite frightening I found it quite sort of I don't know uh terrifying to feel this thing taking control of you I suppose
1: yeah, it, it is. I mean, I think because you're so aware suddenly of, you know, your body and your mind, and, you know, for me, it um, it affected my eyesight, which I thought was the most difficult because um, I couldn't read anything. And, right. you know, for me, that was just so disorienting. And, you know, you're not really sure as well, at least with the anti antipsychotics, I wasn't sure that I was feeling anything either. And that's, that's just very disorienting to me. Mm. not be sure of what your emotions are um yeah very strange yeah were you
0: desperate to get out or did it nevertheless feel like a kind of environment that was letting you
1: reset oh no I I was desperate to leave Mm. um yeah I just I was desperate to leave and I didn't understand how I could leave and a lot of the time I was just trying to figure out how I could leave um And so it was actually, to be honest, my husband, he he didn't know. So Mm. I remember just asking him and, you know, he was trying to figure out if I was well enough to leave. And obviously the doctors had their own set of criteria. And I just remember feeling just desperate to prove that, you know, I'm sane enough to leave, which I think... (laughs) You know, I mean, yeah. you can laugh about it now. It's like, how do you act sane in a way that is sane? The harder <laughs> Once you try, you start the is yeah. Exactly. You're like, I probably don't seem sane. It's literal at the catch 22, isn't it? Is that, you know? <laughs> it
0: really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what you do to look sane. You probably don't try yeah. <laughs> and demonstrate it in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, as part of your kind of unraveling process of the, the kind of forces and situations that led you to that place you talked about your time with a previous boyfriend where Mm -hmm. things really collapsed for you and sounded absolutely terrifying would you mind talking a little bit about that as well because I I found that a really startling part of the book that I I wasn't expecting to come into the story really
1: yes no of course um so my first very serious um relationship um was with a a guy who lived in Hong Kong and um, was after university. And I ended up moving to Hong Kong with him. Um, and what I, I mean, I, I guess I was very naive. What I didn't realize is that actually he was a very violent and unstable person. Mm. Um, and I guess throughout the relationship, you know, I was more and more in his um, control, I suppose, just because I was living in his country and with his family. and. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was extremely violent and often for no discernible reason. Right. And I, it took me a really long time to realize, um, that it wasn't my fault. Um, and that actually he wasn't going to change. Cause I think, you know, mm. I thought maybe, you know, our, our relationship was complicated or that I was a difficult, um, girlfriend and, you know,
0: yeah, no one's difficult if enough I, if to I just acted differently.
1: Exactly. And I, you know, you. you I, I just didn't realise and once I did realise it was like a spell had been broken and I, I just left, um yeah. without kind of any possessions. But I there were many instances where I genuinely thought he might, you know, just kill me. Yes, <laughs> and terrifying. it was it is terrifying and I think especially that that sense of not knowing what's going to happen next, um, you know, or that you're facing, you know, some something really terrible, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's really um, you know, dis- disorienting experience, and for me, I suppose I thought I had, you know, processed it and gotten over it. Um, but what I, the, one of the reasons I included it um, in the book is that in the psychosis, he kind of came up a lot, kind of in this, you know, whether it was I thought I he was standing outside my door, or wow. you know, I thought I was, you know, his mother. You know, there was just he kind of recurred, um, and. I suppose I wanted to show how that there are these kind of echoes in your past that can kind of come up um, again when you least expect it.
0: Yeah, the the way that trauma just follows you through your life and it's very hard to shed and under a moment of extreme duress, it, it feels to me like you joined a lot of dots somehow and that was yes. catastrophic for you, but it, it was almost inescapable because you also talked mm-hmm. about the kind of echoes of your family's um you know migration away from Korea as well you know that that sense of escaping that that you must have related really strongly to
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: yeah so when you get back to the uk you you finally you finally got out <laughs> they finally let you yeah. out um and you spent some time kind of recovering in a in a hotel room um yeah and you had to make friends with your baby son all over again, I guess. You'd had a long time apart by then.
1: Yes, so, um, and I think this is a really common uh, experience for women who've experienced postpartum psychosis, um, particularly for those who are separated from their babies. So I had spent two weeks away from my son, but then by the time we were reintroduced, you know, I kind of thought we would go back to the way we were. um, But actually, his presence, you know, it was painful physically Mm. for me to even touch him. Um, And that was, you know, a really surprising and kind of shocking emotion to feel. And, you know, I had to force myself to kind of, you know, even hold him for longer than a minute or two. Mm. Um, And very much a lot of my recovery was um, focused on trying to rebuild a bond. Right. Um, with my son and I think, you know, there's a lot of shame around that and a lot of you know, um, guilt yeah, over that yeah. as well um, and kind of it's so strange because you don't understand how, you know, a bond like that can be severed really And but it, it can be and I think you know, when I think about it, I think maybe it's, a, it's an act of preservation mm. um, you know, if a mother is unwell, um, then maybe part of her is trying to protect her child by sending them away yeah you know, and, and in kind of the most exactly
0: yeah and protecting yourself yeah. too I was, I was going to say you know because the the kind of extremity and the absoluteness of maternal love is it's just not something you can do 50% of is, is it? it it's it's so full-on and I think I think that I think that initial bond is a bit of a myth actually I don't think it's just you that that kind of lost a bit of that bond when you you had time in hospital I think Mm -hmm. I think it grows and we don't talk about it as something that grows we talk about something that lands on us like a divine revelation
1: Um,
0: (laughs) and the more women I talk to about those early months the more of them tell me that that wasn't really how it was for them anyway and that it's maybe a little bit of a A heavy expectation on us that that many of us feel that we didn't get right first off and that that's Mm -hmm. that actually is maternal love maybe maybe it it is a bit more slow and steady than than we are led to believe
1: yeah no I think that's true I mean I do remember you know reading about birth experiences and people saying that the moment that their child was placed in their arms they just felt tired <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah i know i felt tired <laughs> yeah and I, I just didn't i didn't feel that way and you know i i was just like oh okay <laughs> well you know so because yeah. you are strangers you know you you haven't met this person yet and at the moment they're more of an idea than they are a person you know mm. they they're just kind of this thing that needs sustenance and care they don't yeah, so. But well, they're quite yeah, frightening I, I at think... first, I think, particularly the yeah. first
0: one. You, you, you know, they're a monumental challenge at a moment when you feel absolutely broken, or maybe that was just me. Yeah. Um Nesting. And I, I just remember this sense of of unreality actually when my son, when they first put my son in my arms, and it was, it was like, oh god, I thought you were a concept. I didn't think you were an actual <laughs> thing, and here you are, and oh my god, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean i think that's the one thing about the psychotic the psychosis also is that in a way it's you know i've heard that in some cultures it's expected that you feel this dissociation from yourself when you first become a mother wow um and i think that's not really talked about as much yeah um that you know it's your your mind has to kind of understand this new identity this new reality um yeah it's a shift
0: it makes a load of sense and i you know I, I think I, I end up writing about this and saying it over and over again but we've tried so hard not to listen to mothers experiences at these moments in their life and to tell them what their experience should be that loads of different ways of encountering that moment and that that season is are coming out now and I, it's so important it's just I think that's why your account is so important I it, we've got to hear it um to kind of round up your story you returned to the UK and it sounds like you got really excellent care once you got back home again. I did
1: yes um yeah really you know I know the book isn't really the kind of book that talks about the differences of the US and the UK medical system. yeah sure but it could have been yeah. uh, it, it was night and day um I we came back and I was immediately referred to a perinatal team, um, and I was assigned to a psychiatrist who met with me, and you know, she she really listened and she really considered the next steps. Because at least in the U.S., when I was released from the ward, the only thing they gave us was a prescription. They didn't give us any instruction wow. um, about my care. Um, they didn't, you know, there there was no direction, and so really, it was it was up to my husband to kind of come up with what to do next. A care plan. Um, yeah, a care plan. He came up with the care plan, which to me, now that I realize it, you know, that's, that's just re- a bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I was with the perinatal team and they kind of, they knew that, you know, I would most likely experience depression. Um, mm. I, I didn't know that. I, I felt fine. So it came as a complete shock to me when I think it was around two or three weeks after returning to London that the depression just came yeah Um, yeah
0: it's almost like a kind of bounce downwards a a sort of um equal and opposite reaction to the the extreme overstimulation of psychosis I I gather yeah yeah and so it's kind of inevitable but you've gradually got better and you know got now a, a really intense bond with your son
1: Yes. I mean, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate in that, you know, um, it took, you know, time. Mm. But for me, the the depression was around, you know, two, three months. And then, which, you know, seemed unending at yeah. the time, yeah. but, you know, it did end. And then um, I was in medi- on medication for, you know, basically a year. And then throughout that time I was just building the bond with my son and kind of waiting to feel you know you know like we had a bond mm-hmm. and I can you know I can say now that we, we definitely do I mean he's two and a half now so <laughs> uh, it has taken time but um I thought I had a bond with him you know from the early days but actually now that I think back on it I was still pretty distant and so it came it came about very gradually mm-hmm. um and it was something that we had to build um I had to build this a very conscientious effort. Yeah. I think
0: it just takes a bit longer for some of us, you know, and I I love the way you talk about the whole experience, you know, right from the start, right to the, you know, that long process of bonding without any shame. I think it's so important that we are able to do that and we're able to let each other do that without any judgment. It's just it's just massively refreshing. And uh, I just yeah, I so admire I, it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. No, I I think that's really important. And, you know, that's one of the, that was one of my primary motivators, you know, in terms of writing the book is that there is so much stigma and shame, especially around postpartum psychosis. But, you know, I think um, it would be helpful. I think once you have, once people have empathy and kind of understand the reasoning, then, you know, that shame should be erased. And a lot of the shame, and I think guilt, is you know self-imposed but also I think society in general is just very judgmental about anything in terms of motherhood and it's just it's so unnecessary and um I think really um harmful actually to women
0: oh I really think it is and I think every single woman I know who's had a child trails around with some sense of shame about something it's like we're all just perpetually ashamed and we never have the space to kind of say do you know what I'm doing okay I'm not going to win any awards but um, (laughs) I always see that kind of Tesco mother of the year thing come past and think whoa lady I don't know how you do that but but
1: we're doing okay you know (laughs) we've got nothing to be ashamed of (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Everyone's just trying to survive. I think that was my conclusion from the end of this experience is, you know, everyone is just trying to survive. You really, I really cannot judge um, mm. and I shouldn't judge. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: how would you approach the whole process? I don't know if you ever want to have another child again. It's none of my business to ask, but, but <laughs> would you have any thoughts or feelings about how you'd approach it differently? What have you learned for any other time around with with this kind of experience
1: yes well um no i I do want another child you know if we're able to have one um and it is a bit daunting because the statistics um for women who've had postpartum psychosis it's 50% wow um that it will happen again um you know which when you hear that when my husband heard that, he was like, we're not having another <laughs> child. <laughs> but for me, I was like, no, I think, I think it will be fine. Um, Look, I'll, I'll so... go in for another round with
0: all of that. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but I think, you know, well, for one thing, I, I feel much more confident in that those, hearing those sort of stories and feeling that sort of uncertainty, I wouldn't feel that way again. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would have kind of the strength to know i'm actually doing the right thing that i'm not endangering right. my son and i think i wouldn't be so susceptible to criticism or mm-hmm. to warning um i wouldn't travel <laughs> right yeah um or if, yeah. you know i you know um especially not to five different cities and five different places mm. you know that's just a bit silly um but yeah i think the main thing also is i would just take care of myself which is you know anytime someone I know tells me that they're expecting a child you know I try not I don't give advice but the one thing I do say is just take some time for yourself and Mm. take care of yourself because I think the focus so much is on taking care of a child that often you know it actually it was the reason we got traveler's insurance I got it because of you know my son (laughs) I didn't realize I would be the one using it so yeah, yeah I think that sort of mentality is just um something to bear in mind and it's, it is something that we lose so often
0: in so many different parts of our life that we we don't think we should prioritise our own needs. And the problem is that we push ourselves too far so often. I know I've done that a whole range of different ways in my life. Um, and I think it is the, the greatest thing you'll ever learn to to really take care of yourself alongside mm-hmm. all the other things. So you are, as well as a writer, a literary agent, a busy literary agent, um, I'm very impressed that you managed to write a book amongst all the other things you do. Um, it seems to take up a lot more of my headspace than that. So, so that's very admirable. Um, are you planning any more books or is this this a kind of one-off thing that you wanted to express?
1: Well, yeah, I think the only reason I was able to write it was I, I was still on maternity leave. Um, so mm. I think that's why it's, it's actually very, you know, I hadn't really thought about writing as literary agent just because, You have so many voices in your head as a literary agent you know Mm -hmm. you're you're constantly reading new material and um you know reading submissions and reading your own clients work so i I think i was only able to really do that because i had the space to myself yeah um well after the experience i i i have thought you know it would be lovely to write more things but i just don't know what else I would write about. um, (laughs) My editor asked me, she was like, do you have other books in mind? And I I really don't. So maybe, you know, I I don't have that creative mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you clearly do. But I think some people have like bigger gaps
0: between books than others, don't they? I think, oh, well, I mean, you see this, you see loads of different examples, many more (laughs) than I do. But it's uh, how, how did it, has it changed your attitude to your, the writers in your care? Writing a book yourself, did it reveal stuff that you didn't know before?
1: Oh, I mean, definitely. I I hadn't expected it to, but I just you, I realized just how vulnerable it is to to write something and then share it with someone.
0: <laughs> you know what we go through now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was it was it was terrifying. Um, you know, to send something to my agent and mm. wait for her to tell me what she thought about it and. Yeah, you, know, you you really you realize how vulnerable that whole process is. And I remember when she was starting to submit to editors. It was oh, just
0: that's the worst. <laughs> the
1: worst experience. It just sucks waiting. so much. It really <laughs> yeah. does. <laughs> yeah, there's really nothing to kind of. Yeah, you just you are just waiting. And so I think one thing it's really taught me is a, a whole level of empathy for writers and kind of what they're going through. And um, I think sometimes you know, as agents, you you just see so many writers and manuscripts you you can kind of forget that behind every manuscript there's years or months you know there, there's someone's life behind that <laughs> there's a quaking so, human being yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a good reminder yeah I, I, sure.
0: I really really do sincerely believe that memoirists in particular need a support group you know that we can go to once a week and just talk about the trauma of everyone being all up in our business and I still feel that compulsion to share more like I don't know why I do it but it's what I do (laughs) well it has been absolutely amazing to talk to you I have longed to be able to ask you about your book for a very very long time now because I really just felt like it opened a doorway to another world and i admire it so much so thank you so much for talking to me tonight and uh, i wish you all the best with your son and your your future plans which sound very exciting thank you (laughs) thanks very much Catherine.
1: thank you
0: And that's all for this week's show. Thank you so much to Catherine Cho for her incredible wisdom and insight. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a star rating. It really helps. And join us next week to meet a writer who found Winter a comfort when she was making a huge change in her life. Thanks for listening. Bye.